Welcome to another episode of Strategy and Sourdough. Today, Onur and I have a guest with us in our virtual studio. Our virtual studio today spans between Switzerland, Singapore, and outskirts of Sydney. Uh, so we have Ben Hartman with us today. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having us, guys. It, um, it is awesome to be here, the outskirts of Sydney, we say. It's a little town called Wollongong, about oh, one and a half hours south of Sydney, and we are in the midst of a, a cold 14-degree winter night down this way. That's Incredible. summer here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Finnish summer as well. Ben is, I would say, one of the pioneers of the entertainment and partnerships industry. Ben is at the moment the chief client officer at Octagon across Europe, Asia Pacific, Middle East and Africa. A quick introduction onto Octagon. Octagon is a global creative agency that specializes in sports and entertainment, creating partnerships, campaigns, experiences. Two of us have worked together in the past and Ben is an expert in negotiating deals with talent, partnerships, anywhere from the likes of F1 stars like Mark Webber, I believe you've negotiated in the past, down to esports sponsorships with big brands. And most importantly for me, Ben is really known for having an inverse relationship between the seniority of his roles and the formality of his clothes. <laughs> and, and that's why we get along so well. So I uh, really love that. I was wondering how you're going to get that in there. I do quite enjoy it. Like I think as the seniority has gone, the professionalism in outfits has come out. The length of beard has grown and the hair on the top of the head's gotten even less. So it's been this amazing scientific study about the deconstruction of my professionalism over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. However, I think the actual professionalism and the kinds of things that you do with big brands, agencies and startups alike has, has not disappeared. It's, it's gotten even better. And I think one of the things that you and I have spoken about before, and you also talk about this online, is this sort of mix between paid and earned attention. I thought that would be a great kind of starting point to kickstart our discussion today. Can you just kind of provide your view of these two concepts and how you see them as important in today's world? It's, it's interesting that we do this kind of discussion on a podcast. because I think it's one of the perfect examples of, of earned attention and how that's actually grown and changed and what we're doing in this space. I think as consumers and inherently in the world of sport and entertainment, which is the world I live and breathe, we're talking about fans and not just consumers. It's so important that we are actually adding value to their experience and are adding value to the things that they love and care about. And when we're getting flooded with hundreds and thousands and you know even more marketing messages each day and week, the ability to kind of cut through and be able to find and capture somebody is becoming increasingly hard. You know, I think they say we've got about eight seconds of attention and so for us to be able to hold that space and to be able to think through it and be able to understand how long we can capture people we don't have very long to grab people and so the idea here of being able to differentiate by marketing work that earns your attention that adds value to your experience that provides something more for you than when you first started the exercise is inherently where i think the marketing world is heading at an increasing rate I'm glad you didn't use the goldfish analogy here, which um, always uses <laughs> the attention span of a goldfish is eight seconds, I believe. Everyone uses that. I'm really glad you stayed away from that. So earning attention rather than paying for that attention. And I guess the, the message from a marketing perspective is that you probably have to do both of these things. But I'd want to focus today our chat more on the earning, earning people's attention. So if we start from big brands, um, I mean, you've got decades of experience literally working with some of these big brands and getting there. What are some of the ways that brands are earning people's attention today in a market that's harder and harder to earn? 
I think the simplest premise of it is that big brands now are trying to talk to people through things that they care about most, the things that they love in life, the things that are actually inherently important to them. And I think even more over the last 12 and 18 months as the world's changed and shifted, we've seen that in an even increasing rate. So you know, as we talk about platforms like sport, like entertainment, like influencers, like travel, all of these things that we hold dear in our life, to be able to talk to people through these lenses and add value to that experience is how brands are connecting with people. You know, they're not forcing a message. They're not being able to just be able to tell you what they're telling you. They're actually adding inherent value that's relevant to the brand, to your experience. What does this mean in the context of uh, startups? Because on one hand, their communication usually revolves around educating their consumers about how they are solving a very specific problem. Whereas when you elevate it to sports and entertainment, it's almost a different territory of communicating with consumers at the top of the funnel and more around brand building. How do you think entertainment translates in the context of startups? It's really interesting when you think about the objectives based from a startup perspective and where you're at and trying to drive interest. You know, you've got this balance between just plain awareness and people understanding that you exist in the first place into comprehension of who you are and what you do. And I think that's where there's a really interesting dynamic that exists in the sport and entertainment space for startups. You know, as a pure brand building exercise, that platform has eyeballs. It's a beacon of attention. So it gives you actually just a mass awareness level. It's probably not also the cheapest form of media that you can buy. So getting involved in sport and entertainment isn't necessarily just the smartest way to go about it just from a pure media strategy. There's, there's eyeballs and spots and dots that can be bought at a cheaper rate. But to be able to connect with people and when you come back to this idea about earn attention rather than just pay for it, I think that's where you start to be able to delve into understanding why you exist, what you actually do, and how it's relevant to people's lives. When we look at the sports and entertainment that way, what are some of the more specific ways that brands get involved? I mean, you've got the low-hanging fruit, like you, you, know, you can buy a sponsorship of a stadium and you can name it and things like that, right? Which are probably outside of the opportunities from a spend perspective of startups. But there are lots and lots of other opportunities to get involved. Would love to kind of dive a little bit into some of the different ways that startups can, can get started in this space. People are looking at entering into this world in completely different ways. I think you start off with just the pure thematic of what we're talking about. At its inherent point, you've got an entertainment platform, whether it's sport or whether it's music or beyond that. You've got something that people are actually enjoying and participating in and the levels of you getting involved in that can come about from so many different ways so it can start at a talent way you know there's ways to be able to engage with talent and influencers to be able to understand or connect with an audience there's ways to be able to just talk thematically about understanding that space and some of the best work that we see produced doesn't necessarily come from official partnerships and relationships, but becomes from understanding your audience in a way that talks about what's relevant in the cultural zeitgeist at that time. You've got the opportunities then to look at things like partnerships, and that can come in the way of additional sponsorships. It can come through media and broadcast relationships. It can come through streaming channels now. You know, the way that people are consuming these products is so broad and varied that the entry points for brands or startups coming into this space is now quite infinite. When it comes to working with influencers, I have very mixed views on this topic. So I'm 
definitely curious to hear yours. Says the man that started a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I feel that. What's the best way to measure whether your efforts are working out or not? Because on one hand, it seems like a no-brainer. They have the audience and they have the relevance and it makes a lot of sense to partner with them. On the other hand, it sometimes seems so detached from actual business results and so at the top of the funnel that it's hard to justify an investment like that. So what are some of the good ways to partner with influencers and celebrities? It's really interesting because I think that when you think about partnerships in any form, and, and influencers is a good example of it, I think that the starting point of this, you have to understand why you're getting into that partnership. And that's often the first mistake that's made in these things, that you're not understanding the purpose of why you're getting into that. When you talk about selling product, you know, selling product is a result of probably short-term sales activations and long-term brand building. And those two things can't work separately with each other. They need to work together and have that perspective. I think when you go into any partnership and talents and influences is a good one, that you're going into that space firstly because it says something about who you are. It's the company that you keep. It's the equity that you share. And so you want to be recognized and understanding about that. You're going into them because there's an inherent audience that you think would be interested in obviously the influencer, but interested in what you've got to say or you've got to do in that space. And then finally, you're doing that to be able to then convince people to kind of start to push them from a level of kind of comprehension into consideration and ultimately purchase of where, of where you're getting to. You know, the beauty of e-commerce now and how that's working and operating is that there are more direct links between influencers and direct sales. And you are able to see kind of instant traffic and instant understanding of how that works. You know, an interesting example that we've seen on, on a project, less in the influencer space, but more from a, a direct sales activation around partnership marketing, is that we were able to track the way that signage came up at a stadium at Old Trafford, Manchester United Stadium, and the direct correlation it had in selling movie tickets to a new Marvel movie in Beijing. And you can see these trends in consumer behavior and how they're working. And I think the ability to kind of influence people at the time when they're passionately engaged is proven. And how has this space evolved in the last, I would say, year and a half? Obviously, living through a pandemic, a lot of live events, live sports, uh, a lot of the more traditional ways of getting involved in talent, entertainment, fans, and sport have evolved. What are some of the things that you've seen evolve in this space? The idea of putting fan voices into empty stadiums is probably something that I've seen 78,000 times over the last uh, 12 months. So I think, you know, we've seen some of the very similar ideas coming through the world and how people are trying to operate, and that's on its most base level. But I think where it's being done well and where that's done has become in the consumer behavior and where that's changed. You know, one of the biggest growths we've seen has been in the space of collectibles, And there's collectible space where people are thinking about, okay, what's the value of not just my collector cards and items that exist? And that's been huge in the sports industry for the last 20 or 30 years. But how that's now grown into the technology space and what's happening in the world of NFTs and how that's actually been driving output of collectibles and memorabilia for fans. That's something I don't think people would have said 12 months ago. When you look at the boom that's happened in how this is done, in the fan engagement in this space, in how fans are purchasing, using different technological advances, different elements that they would have appreciated as a kid, the Panini cards they grew up in, and now 
being consumed in a completely different way. I think these are some of the things that we're seeing as different. I also think the role that talent is playing in this space is very different than it was 12 to 18 months ago. You know, over the last 18 months, I think we've found athletes, entertainers find a very different voice to what they had in the way that they're communicating, not just with their partners, but in terms of the broader fandom at large. They're more selective about the partnerships they're having. They're more selective about the work that they're doing and how they're engaging in all of that. And how you engage with this talent is fundamentally different. A lot of them want to come in at the ground floor, have a conversation about how they can help grow your business, not just be paid a check and be able to kind of walk away at the end of it. I think that's been a significant evolution in this space. Let me put you on the spot here because we always like to joke about an enterprise B2B CRM startup hypothetical startup that sells a relatively boring piece of software. And let's imagine this startup has only considered running ads on LinkedIn and maybe doing a few webinars so far. What would you advise such a startup founder to start even thinking about sponsorships or partnerships with influencers, if at all? Or to ask the question a bit more broadly, are there specific types of startups that would benefit from sponsorships and uh, working with influencers compared to others love being put on the spot like this you certainly didn't prepare us for this one <laughs> I, I, I think the advice on it will always come back to objective on this like we're in the understanding you know, at this stage of the startup where it comes back to how are we actually going to connect with that right audience in the way that has meaning we're seeing that investment in kind of the mass brand building exercise happening a lot in the partnership place I'm not sure I'd be recommending that to the startup and how that's working. You've got a really interesting component that comes with partnership, and that's exclusivity. When you enter into a partnership, then as one of the only marketing mediums that has that right attached to it is that you do get exclusivity, and it means that your competitors can't and you're not able to do that. So your mm. ability to provide differentiated experiences, whether that is a B2B business or a direct-to-consumer business, that's what sets this channel out compared to anything else is that component of exclusivity. I think more than that as well, when we look at what that product would be and how that would work, I think you have a role in this space to actually provide demonstration of product and what you can actually deliver. And I think we're seeing that more and more in partnerships and influences. If you're able to show and not just tell people what your product does and show that in a way that improves their experience, then you're going to have a lot greater opportunity to be able to drive very fast returns on, on what you're trying to do. I think these experiences are really key, actually, because if you think about it now, People have been in lockdown for quite a while. It's unlikely the world ordering travel and stuff like that is going to change anytime soon, right? And regardless of what industry you're in, how do you take your most valuable customers you might have today, provide them something that they might not be able to experience right now elsewhere and have that association to music or sport or, or something like that, whether it's happening virtually or not? I think there's a lot of value in that. And at the end of the day, we often talk about this, you know, what, what's a way to get your most valuable customers to talk about your product and your business to people who might buy from you. And it's those sort of associations that you make that are really interesting, I think. And you can't necessarily get that through the traditional channels of buying media, however creative your, your campaigns are, right? It's so much of it now is about the conversations we have around the dinner table and the conversations we have with people as we've had these experiences and whatever those experiences are. And particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, our dinner conversations are probably a little more boring than they once were. But I think the interesting part is I actually think 
sport and entertainment's been ahead of the game compared to most industries in this space. Because the truth of it is that 99% of the people that are engaging in their product don't ever get to experience the the experience or the, the peak of that product in the way that most people have. You know, the majority of Liverpool football fans live in Asia. The majority of them are never going to actually attend a match at Anfield. And so for the last 10, 15 years, they're having to be build differentiated experiences to be able to have the predominant fan base never actually set foot inside a stadium in the north of England. And I think that's given that advantage to this industry in that the experience that people are consuming is already differentiated and it is already kind of experienced in different ways to many other mediums. You bring up a really good point. As a brand, how do you become a part of the dinner table conversations that are even more excluded than perhaps they were before the pandemic? And one way to get there is through these associations that you mentioned that may come with the talent that your company is associated with, right? Yeah, in the right opportunities and having the right people involved in your business, they're sitting at the table with you and a part of that growth and a part of that discussion and a part of the building of whatever it is you're doing. As you look to shape the businesses in the startup world, many kind of celebrities' talent have wanted to come in on the ground floor and be part of that growth if they've believed in what you're doing and not just sitting there as a paid voice on something. It's almost like including them in the process. I'm a little bit skeptical about people sitting around dinner table and talking about brands, or to put it in other words, brand trying to stay relevant to the conversation by injecting themselves into an otherwise unrelated area, such as a dinner conversation. But in the case of a startup, and especially if the influences or the sponsorships are vested in the growth of that startup, like you mentioned, I think it could be quite natural and interesting. I think the natural part of it comes if you're bringing back to this notion at the start of earning attention, that if you're coming back to people through things that they care about, people are going to have an opinion on it and people are going to share that. And that's the difference. You're not sitting there talking about a brand that you've seen or experienced or watched an ad or experienced through LinkedIn. You're actually talking about them through something that they did to make the things you care about better. And, and that's where you do get a relevant role in their life. How much have you seen the, the change then, or the shifting way of, you mentioned talents are more selective in the partnerships they choose and want to be there in the conversations with brands, whether it's negotiated through Octagon or the work that you've personally done. Have you seen some examples lately of talent really backing companies that they fundamentally believe in and essentially becoming really the voices of some of these emerging companies? What are some of the examples you might have seen out there? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. And the truth is that they are happening and they're happening every day at these companies that are being helped grown by businesses and being grown by the talent and where they come from. And I think like we see it in the esports world where we've actually got the backers of significant elements of the technology, significant elements of the actual gaming themselves are some of the biggest athletes in the world that have got behind and back some of this and built it from life. You've got some of the biggest celebrities in the world that are building their own production houses and production companies to be able to get onto the ground floor of bringing to life property, bringing to life the different business partnerships that they're working on. And then you've got, you know, people like LeBron James and Steph Curry's that are building their own business empires and are growing that from the ground up and are investing in all different types of businesses as they grow. Things from a perspective of perhaps the more sponsorship 
angle, right? We've spoken a lot about talent and how different musicians and sports stars and these sort of modern influencers, you're talking about gamers, you're talking about Instagram stars and, you know, people like that. But the other aspect is the sponsorships. And when we think about startups, right, the sponsorships game might be out of reach a little bit potentially, right? But are there sort of more micro ways of getting started in the sponsorships that may help associations with your brand if you're sort of an up-and-coming business? I think there's probably an, a misunderstanding of what it would take to get involved in the sponsorship world and how, and how that would work and this notion that they won't be able to enter or there's a barrier to enter, I think has changed. I think you've come from a place where there's been a huge financial impact on the sports and entertainment world by the fact that you've got very little live attendance and touring and all of this going on. So the revenue streams and the commercial streams coming into this world are significantly impacted. And I think it's meaning that people are thinking differently as to what type of sponsors and partners are coming on board and what value they can bring to the actual experience for their consumers and their fans and how that's working. So I think the first part is to, I don't think that the financial barrier is as big as it once was and where that was coming from. I think the truth of it is that the idea of what you're going to do with the sponsorship is as important as the sponsorship itself and what you're choosing to go. And, you know, to be able to start with the idea of what role it plays for your business and how that can work is really important. You know, a perfect example of a recent campaign that I think a lot of people around the world would have seen was Burger King did one of their first jersey sponsorships and they actually chose a fourth division club in the UK called Stevenage. And the reason they did that jersey sponsorship was not because of the returns they were going to get on the media that were watching the games and how it worked, is because it put them on the front of the shirt on the FIFA game. And that media coverage and that understanding actually generated a much more significant audience than you could have ever imagined in the way that they would have got through any type of traditional linear media coverage. And then what they did was that was reward fan behaviour. So all of a sudden, Burger King found themselves being the front of a jersey of Stevenage, which was now the most played team on FIFA because of the way they engaged fandom in that space. So the sponsorship itself wasn't the clever part of it. This, the actual execution and the way that the idea sat behind that of how they were then going to use that audience was what separated that. So going back to the idea that, in fact, creativity is the last competitive advantage that we have to grow our businesses, really, all other things being equal, right? You can't get away from it. All <laughs> of these other things are different channels and audiences to get away from it. But the ultimate part of it is creativity is what's going to set you apart. I'm curious about the other side of the table, which is also dubbed as the creator economy with the rise of platforms like TikTok and Instagram, arguably. There's a lot more of these mini influencers or people who are influential in their domain. What does that mean for the future of sponsorships? How do you see that world evolving? Yeah, I think the notion of pure sponsorships is somewhat gone already. I think the idea that sponsorships has transitioned into partnership has already happened. And you need to be able to look at this as the two-way street that's happening between us. What are you looking to purchase and what are you looking to give in return? Not always money. You know, nowadays we're talking about partnerships of mutual benefit that's coming up. And I think that's the same place when we start to talk about influencers and micro-influencers mm -hmm. in that the platform that you're doing and what you can do together is going to be able to help create and drive whatever benefit that you're looking at. 
Um, the traditional write large check, get your logo on something isn't really happening anymore. And I think that was already changing and now it's just been accelerated. But I also think when we talk on this element of micro influencers and influencers, some of that is still going to remain unpredictable. And that's the amazing part of this. When we look at ocean spray last year and how that developed they weren't planning for that they didn't understand that they actually captured a moment took care of a moment and then fostered that but that was more how reactive that were than how proactive they were in that space let me try and summarize some of the points that we spoke about i think the starting point really is the ability to cut through is harder than it's ever been right earning people's attention is incredibly difficult and when we look at any company, startups included, that balance of plain awareness and comprehension of what your company does is really, really important. And potentially another avenue to complement your other paid activity could be sports, entertainment, and talent as those beacons of awareness that you mentioned earlier. And there's a lot of entry points into that. So looking at different thematic platforms of sports, music, entertainment, looking at talent and influencers, partnerships, streaming channels, online, offline events, and really what's relevant in the cultural conversations around some of these ideas. But the key really is the company you keep as a company, what associations the talent that you keep company with have and do to your business, and the fans and the audiences they attract should probably be a good starting point for companies to look at who to um, associate themselves with. And a couple of things to kind of give some pointed advice. First of all, talent have found a really different voice today. So people are more selective in the partnerships that they choose. They really want to be there talking about your business and helping grow the business if they care about that sort of uh, business that you're in. And then the other side of it, really, which is the sponsorship side of it, they've evolved massively. And the idea and the creative idea about what you're sponsoring has become really, really important. And perhaps the ticket to access sponsorships is lower than it's ever been before. I love the example that you gave around Burger King sponsoring a fourth division club to get into FIFA. Anything that you want to add? It's great, the summary. I mean, it makes me sound a lot smarter than I am. So that's brilliant how you put all that together. The one part when you start to talk through this that I think from a startup perspective is that people in the sports and entertainment industry are also going through significant challenges and understanding evolution in their business. And depending what your product focus is, you could actually have a role that you have in helping solve all of this innovation in fan experience, innovation in how we consume, innovation in how we communicate, innovation in how we experience our passions is vital. And I think more and more large sports, entertainment, rights holders, properties open to those conversations about how they can actually change that experience and the roles that startups can play in that. So coming at it as much as a business opportunity as well as a partnership is also a good lens to be looking at it through for any startup that's got a relevant product. That's awesome. Yeah. So any startups that may be listening today, here's a business opportunity for you. How can you bring your product or your company to the table in enhancing the fan experience in a largely remote and online world? And what a better way to do it than to actually improve the things that we all love. Absolutely. Kind of related to that, I do have one final question for you. You mentioned once that you have an irrational confidence in your karaoke skills. Ah. Where does that confidence come from? Yeah, this is true. It's actually a, a recent event that I had. I was actually a, a groomsman at a wedding, and we ended up having to having to play three songs for the uh, for the bride as we went there. And there I was 
with probably six guitar chords under my belt, front and center in the middle of the wedding, absolutely singing at the top of my lungs to be able to kind of help woo the bride. I don't know. I think the uh, the confidence that comes with that, with the ability for being less and less professional and well-dressed in the industry is the same thing that probably fuels my desire and love for karaoke. I think we need a security cam footage of that. There probably is some that exists somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll find it. <laughs> Look, Ben, it's been amazing having you on the show today. Thank you to all of the listeners. Thank you very much for your insights and your time today. And Is there a place where people can follow your journey and the journey of Octagon? Yeah, absolutely. Just website octagon.com or drop me an email. I'm super happy to talk to anyone around this. In fact, during COVID, one of the things that I started to do was having 30-minute conversations with people around the sport and entertainment space that just wanted to be able to pick brains for a little bit. So hit me up at ben.hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N, at octagon.com. Amazing. Amazing. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Ben. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Strategy and Sourdough. We'd love to get any feedback, questions, or topic suggestions you may have. Drop us a line at hello at strategyandsourdough.com. 